Hi, I'm Sharon Hunter, and this is Moonstone Connections, a podcast that puts the spotlight on important leaders in the world of arts and entertainment. Through in-depth conversations with people in the arts, we will get a chance to learn about them and how they are making a difference. Well, today I want to welcome Kevin Connors. I'm so happy to have him on the podcast. Kevin has been a professional musical theater composer and director for more than 40 years, off-Broadway with shows like Play Like a Winner, which is a New York award winner for 2016 and 2017. Also, he directed Primetime Profit, Jukebox Saturday Night, The Abandoned Loves of Frederick R., Life Anonymous. He also... Uh, has directed regional productions like The Fantastics, It's a Wonderful Life, a live radio play, Babes in Toyland, with such stars as Joan Rivers, Joanna Gleason, James Naughton, Skitch Henderson, and Johnny Mathis. He was the co-founder of the Music Theater of Connecticut in 1987, and he still serves as the executive artistic director. He's directed over 100 MTC equity mainstage productions, including Next to Normal, The Bridges of Madison County, Jekyll and Hyde, Cabaret, Evita, Doubt, Masterclass, goes on and on. And these were all Connecticut Critics Circle Award nominees and winners for him. And uh, It's a Wonderful Life, a live radio play, was a Moss Hart Award winner. In 2019, Broadway World awarded him as winner of Best Director for MTC's Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. And in 2020, Connecticut Critics Circle Award winner, he was Best Director for MTC's Ragtime. And he is also a composer, and I want to talk to him about that. He's penned the score for numerous musicals, including It's a Wonderful Life, a live radio play, and A Christmas Carol, a live radio play. Both were published by Playscripts Incorporated. He's a 10-time Connecticut Critics Circle Award nominee or winner for Best Director. He's a recipient of the Tom Killen Award for Outstanding Contribution to Connecticut Professional Theater. And he's also served on the faculties of the Hart School of Music, uh, Sacred Heart University, the University of Bridgeport, and Musical Theater Works in New York City. Welcome, welcome, Kevin, to the Moonstone Connections podcast. Uh, What a renaissance man you are. You do it all. Seriously. (laughs) It's quite impressive, I'll tell you. Well, that's very sweet of you to say. Absolutely. Uh, when, when you've been around as long as I am, you've done a little bit of everything. So, uh, so yeah, it's uh, it's been it's an exciting life, and and it's a wonderful life to pun a little bit there. Uh, and um, you know, this the last year has made it a more interesting life. But we're you know we're turning the corner, and everything's getting better. And and thank God for that. I know, and I definitely want to talk to you about that. Uh, as we go forward, because I think that that's uh, that's really important to to talk about where we're headed. Uh, but I want to talk. I want to start by going back and talking about where you started, because I believe you're also from the Midwest, as I am. And and how did you get into theater? Was that a was that a family thing, or was that just you decided, hey, this is for me? You know, I got into I got into theater. I think we all have that moment when um, we're kids and we see something and we go, oh my gosh, I, that's what I want to do. That's what I want to do. And I remember seeing a production. There used to be uh, a big Summerstock production company in the Midwest. I grew up in Ohio. 
-hmm. And there used to be a, a Midwestern production company called Kenley Players that would rotate. They, they produced something and they would go to Flint, Michigan and Columbus, which is where I grew up and Dayton and Pittsburgh. Um, with, they would just build a show and, and rotate it to, to all those different venues in the summertime. And I remember going on a class field trip when I was in fifth grade to see The King and I with an old Hollywood star named Anne Blythe. I remember. Oh, yes, I remember her. And I, that was it for me. I just kind of knew then that there was something in me that was just drawn to this. And so I did, you know, I did musicals in junior high and high school. Um, I was a voice major in college um, and, but did a lot of musicals there and, you know, and, and community theaters and stuff like that when I was in college. And uh, when I left college, uh, my first job, this is odd, was um, in a big production show in Las Vegas um, as a principal singer there. Wow. So I was there for a year and, um, and that was fun, but it was interesting because everybody else in the show had like been in Broadway shows and done New York and all of that kind of thing and had come to Las Vegas to sort of like just settle into a lifestyle. You know, it was very cheap to live there then. The weather's great. There was no state income tax and the salary was great and you got free benefits and the whole thing. And so they had sort of like gotten there and I was just like, I'm, I'm young, I'm, this is my first thing. And I'm, you know, and, and so I kind of knew after a year, I was like, <laughs> these, I mean, I love them, but it was sort of like, I'm at a different place in my life, in my professional life. So I need to move on. And so I lived in California for a year and then I uh, got a job in a national tour of Carousel. And that's when I got my equity card and did that and got picked up actually by a management company during that time to produce um, and be in an, a big industrial review show. We did cruise lines. We spent a lot of our time opening for Star Acts. We opened for Johnny Mathis and Bob Hope and people like that and uh, did that for two years and then actually ended up, weirdly enough, in St. Louis. Really? Yeah. So I lived in St. Louis from uh, 1982 until 85. And when I was there, I did two seasons at the Muni. I did, um, there was a small theater company then called Theater Project Company. I remember that. Yeah, and I worked there and I worked at the Westport Playhouse. They were producing full time then. Yes. So I did three shows there. Is that how you met Judith Cullen, our mutual friend? It is exactly yeah. how I met her because her mother was the costume designer there. That's right. That's and, right. And she was, I think she was the ASM. Um, anyway, I did Christmas Carol. I did a George M. Cohen review there and I did um, um, the Rocky Horror Show there. Wow. Yeah. And uh, two summers at the Muni, one summer at the Kansas City Starlight, and um, ended up moving back to New York at the end of that last summer and came back to New York. And we had a close friend who lived in Connecticut and we were coming up here on the weekends all the time and, and stuff, but really just kind of felt like for some reason we were really drawn to this area. And I'm, we're about an hour out of the city on the train. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's kind of what happened. And um, how do you think those experiences shaped you as a performer and then eventually as a director and as an artistic director? Because one of the, I think the themes that I've found when I've interviewed people is talking so much about early experiences, early connections with people, um, and how that shapes you as you continue your career in the arts. Exactly. Well, 
I when I was a performer, I worked with a lot of really good directors, which also helps a lot. Mm-hmm. It was interesting. And when I was in that national tour of Carousel, um, I kind of knew then, I think, that while I really like performing, you know, directors see things. Well, you're a director, you know, you know this. Directors see things in a different way than actors. Mm-hmm. You know, they just their vision is there, it's just a different lens. You see the whole thing, you see the whole arc, you see how it all goes together, you see all of that stuff. And I could tell during that tour, because it was it was a year, so mm-hmm. um, I could tell that I was starting to look at things in a different way, you know, mm-hmm. and look at that and think, well, I mean, it was directed really well, but I thought, I wonder why he did this here. I, I might've done this here, or this scene might've played in a different way if this were here, you know? And, Interesting. You know, so that was sort of the germ of it at the beginning. And so the further I got I got into my performing career, I started to look, look at things sort of with that lens as well, even though when I was still performing. And I think the other part of it is, I, I'll, just, I'll just say it. Sure. I kind of discovered that I like the rehearsal process better than the performance process. And I love yeah. and I loved performing, but I found that the rehearsal process was when all the discovery happened. And it's when you just walked into a room one day and there was just air. And you know, two or three weeks later, there was this whole story being told, you know? Mm-hmm. And I really I still love that process so much. I agree with you. And I, I've always loved rehearsal, I believe, more than performance, because again, it's that discovery. It's the, it's the as, as our mutual, wonderful friend, Peter Flint used to say, you can dare to be bad. You, you can, you can, you know, you can try things, you can do things, you, you can, you can find things about yourself that you didn't know were there. I I remember I was working on uh, Bernarda Alba, the House of Bernarda Alba with Peter. And I, I came in and I said, how am I going to beat these women up? And he said, look closely, she's there. And one, and I, you know, not to, t- to divulge too much about my past, but there was someone in my family of origin who had been abusive in, in the family. And one day I was standing in rehearsal and I looked in the mirror and I had the stick in my hand and I knew I had to go into this mode. And I looked in the mirror and I actually could see my family member it, it, within me. And I thought, but, but there's something about the rehearsal process because there's a safety there that even though you can find that within yourself, you know, you still have the, you're still in a, in a controlled environment. Exactly. And a safe environment. And that's, that. I think, um, <clears throat> I mean, that's one of the things that I, I love about being a director is, um, and I actually kind of love this, there's a certain amount of directing that's, that feels a little bit like teaching too, you know, it's, first of all, you have to win the trust of the actors and, and, and secondly, you have to create a safe environment. So they feel safe to be bad, safe to fail, safe <laughs> to take chances, all of that kind of stuff. Um, and I, it's interesting, you know, I just directed this production of True, the Truman Capote show, one man show um, that just closed last weekend here. And the actor, I've worked with this actor before um, on three or four shows. And I knew he was perfect for this. And when I called him 
and he's done a ton of stuff, you know, a couple of Broadway things. And I mean, he's, a, he's really the consummate actor. And he said, I'm really excited by this. I'm a little terrified of this. Um, he said, but I trust you so much as a director. If you think I'm going to be okay, then I'm going to be okay. I said, you're going to be okay. It's going to be fun. We're going to have a good time. You'll be okay. And he just went with it. And that's, that's the thing I love too about directing is that you can pull things out of actors they don't think they're capable of doing. You know, and that to me is such a rewarding and exciting thing. Um, and I mean, it happens personally for you when you're performing, but to be able to do that and to create that kind of atmosphere in a company of actors too, I mean, I, you know. That's a good director. And I can see that about you is that there, like you said, there has to be a mutual trust and there also has to be that encouragement because I, I know from the performer aspect of my life, those were the best directors, the ones that f that gave you the permission to try things to f to. And if you came in scared, that that they said you're going to be okay, um, and and that's what I was going to ask you. I mean, d you've done so many different things, directing and composing, and then I do want to hear some of your stories about the people you have worked with because there's a long list of pretty fabulous people. What do you feel you get the most um, pleasure from, or what do you feel the proudest of, Kevin? Um, well, I'm the proudest of this company that I co-founded, you know, 34 years ago. Wow. Um, it's like, I mean, I really, you know, Jimmy and I don't have children, so mm -hmm. this is like our child, mm -hmm. you know, in that sense. And I feel... I think I feel the same way about it that a parent feels about a child. I, I want to protect it. I want it to grow. I want it to be successful. I want, you know, all of those things. Mm -hmm. And so it's, there's a lot of sort of similarity in that. So that's probably, and I know too that, because we have a conservatory here too. And I know that we have changed lives, you know, here. Um, I mean, we have kids who come out of here who, who have very successful careers. Justin Paul came out of here. Wow. But, um, and I'm so, and he, by the way, he's the most terrific human being on the planet. He's just, and he hasn't changed a bit really as a person. He's great. Um, he's like our son. He sang at our wedding. Um, How nice. But, uh, but uh, you know, in addition to that, I know the kids that have come through here who have really developed a strong sense of self-confidence and a strong sense of self that they didn't walk in here with, you know, and I know that theater has given that to them and changed them in that way. And I know that like, for example, when we did Ragtime um, on the main stage last year, I know that telling that story, and that was before every, I mean, we did that in September of 2019. Mm -hmm. And I, I knew how important I thought it was to tell that story, mm -hmm. but I didn't know what was coming. Right. You know, six or eight months later, so it was a little, it turns out that it was a little prophetic in that way, but I think, I think it had, I think it made audiences look at what was going on in our world at that time, even mm -hmm. in a different way, because that takes place at the turn of the, you know, 19th to 20th century. And if you close your eyes, it could have been right now. 
with just like, we haven't learned a damn thing. And I want you to realize that, you know? So Mm -hmm. um, it was a beautiful show. I mean, on top of it, but it tells such a profound story. Um, And our theater is small. It's a three quarter thrust, um, um, 110 seat house. And we did Mm -hmm. ragtime with 14 people. Wow. And you were inside those stories as you are with everything here. And that's the other thing I love about this theater is that you really experience things here. You, you are in it. You are in some cases, four feet away, Mm -hmm. you know, from Broadway actors. And, um, you really feel like you're inside all of the stories here in an experiential way, rather than just kind of observing it, you know, because the, the music theater of Connecticut, that is, um, it's about an hour out of New York City. So you do have an amazing access to so many actors and performers who are on Broadway, who come there. Uh, give, give a few stories of just the people that have worked there and talk a little bit about the theater itself and the productions that you've done. Because I think I think our listeners would probably be really interested to learn a little bit about the theater and the people that work there. And also then we can get into how your theater was really the first, one of the first, if not the first, that was able to perform with the pandemic going on, which is an amazing story. And also a testament to your professionalism and how well you have handled the situation. Well, that's been a challenge. Let's go, I'll go back to the first part first. Um, So, as I, I'm, as a director, I'm, uh, I'm story and character driven, mm-hmm. and I think it's all about telling the story, and I think it's all about experiencing the piece again, and I want audiences to leave here, talking about the show into the next couple of days and what you know what they thought, and oh my gosh, can you? I remember you know I really connected with this character because this happened to me and. I'm gonna look at those situations differently in the future and, and that sort of thing. Um, I mean, we do, you know, we do some shows here that are, that are you know, kind of fluffy and that kind of stuff, but, but by and large, everything we do here, we kind of do for a reason. Um, uh, so uh, like, for example, this year we did, we've done this show several times, but this year it had a whole new sort of meaning. We did the radio show version of It's a Wonderful Life. Um, and especially this year, I think it resonated in a whole different way because it was such a dark time mm-hmm. um, in December. Um, at least here, it was things started to spike again, and it was it was just really you know we had to we had the actors because of the the both the not so much the equity restrictions but the state restrictions here. Um, it's a radio show, but I've, I've directed the show a number of times, but this time we couldn't have the actors interact with each other because you had to be, you had to be six feet apart, um, on stage or, um, or, and with a mask, or Mm -hmm. if you were unmasked, there needed to be a barrier between you. So we, our scenic, a brilliant scenic designer created basically four recording booths all connected but the design on the inside was the same so they looked like a unit but there were literally walls you know between them but it's a radio show and they were able to come on stage and go into these booths do the thing and then and then leave um and i thought it was really important to tell that story at that particular time because 
it's a story about gratitude. And it's a story about, it's kind of the Wizard of Oz story in the sense that whenever you're looking for your heart's desire, don't look any further than your own backyard. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's it's that kind of a feeling. And I felt like, and it, and it leaves you with such hope um, that I really felt like that's what people needed to see at that time. Absolutely. Was that the first show that they were like letting you do when you asked during the pandemic or was there a, or did you have a show before that? There was, were two okay. shows before that. That okay. was at Christmas time. And we okay. opened with fully committed, which is the, which is, you know, everybody needs a little comic relief sometime. And, and that, that was what that was for. And then right before the election, we did a one man show called RFK about Bobby Kennedy. How did, was it because, and we've talked about this because just to give people an, uh, the, the backstory, um, you came and spoke with the St. Louis Theater Task Force to help us to understand what maybe we needed to do to get to where you were so that we could have performances here in St. Louis. However, St. Louis had become a hot spot because of the pandemic with the positivity rate, whereas on the East Coast, you had better numbers earlier. So what was, I guess, what was the impetus or how did you, how did you do this so that people understand that this was not easy last year, it's still not easy, but things are so much better now than, than last year. But you were at the forefront of really doing innovative things to even have a show up and running for, for Actors' Equity's uh, requirements. Right. Uh, okay, so... Going back to the beginning of last of of the whole you know journey, um, we closed on Friday, March thirteenth of mm-hmm. two thousand twenty, in the middle of the rehearsals for the Buddy Holly story. Um, the next that was a Friday on Monday in staff meeting. I'm first of all I'm not the kind to go under the bed. I'm the kind to go. Let's pivot. Let's, and that was before pivot was a hot word, you know, but right. let's figure out what we can do because I felt like it was really important for us to be able to stay connected with our audience. And, and meanwhile, at that time, we thought, oh, we'll be down for three weeks. We'll be down for maybe four or five weeks, something like that. We had no idea that it was going to go on as long as it did. But as that started to sort of unfold, and we had educational programming running at the time. You know, we had 450 subscribers. We had to figure out what we were gonna do with them. Um, so uh, we ended up, we first we ended up postponing Buddy until the summer of 2020, little did we know. Um, but once things started to sort of unfold and this looked like it was gonna be a long haul situation, you know, which was, which here, cause this is kind of where it all started in that way. We were, you know, raging sort of out of control at the very beginning and then got everything in, under control um, more so um, as we got to like September. But during from March until um, September, our venue was closed to the public. We did all virtual stuff because I was determined to stay connected with the audience. I thought we needed it and I thought they needed it. So we did, um, we did a lot of virtual stuff. I started doing a weekly show, um, um, a weekly um, uh, Facebook Live thing called MTC Live, which was like a 20-minute um, show, kind of like Entertainment Tonight. And I would, I would do, you know, I would usually do something, uh, you know, a guest on every show and and that kind of thing. And we did that on a weekly basis 
for six months. Um, and also we did, we did our gala, which we do our gala every year is kind of a thing that we branded called the MTC voice, which we go out and get, um, amateurs in the community. And then we get them coached by Broadway people and they do one song. It's kind of like a mix of the voice and dancing with the stars. And, um, they do, you know, they do one song on the gala night. Usually it's live. Um, people come, they vote, they hold up signs cheering for their person and everything. They get sponsors. That's how the money's raised. It's a whole, it's a whole thing. So we figured out a way to do that virtually. And so we did it virtually in May. In June, which is Pride Month, there was no, there were no Pride events happening. So we did a thing called Pride in the Theater. And I got all these people from Joanna Gleason, there were like 40 people um, to do, uh, uh, we did, it was in a decades kind of format and each decade had something to do with the LGBTQ movement. So the eighties was the AIDS crisis. The nineties was um, equality and, uh, and the two thousands was marriage equality. So. We did, there were scenes from falsettos. There were scenes from the normal heart. There were songs from things. So that was, there was a whole evening, again, all virtual. We partnered with um, the Pride Center in New Haven to do that. Then in July, we did a Broadway cabaret. And in August, we did an interactive murder mystery, uh, virtual interactive murder mystery called Stage Fright, where the audience made choices along the way to determine the direction of the show. All during this time, beginning in June, I had started negotiating with equity because I knew we wanted, I just, I just thought there might be a way that we could get open. And so they were trying to figure out the whole safety protocols too. <laughs> and so we kind of did it together, you know, um, all through July or June and July and August. And then by the end of August, we were, we got, we got approved. I mean, we all, we came to sort of like a meeting in the minds on, all so incredibly much detail. The worksheet is 23 pages long, or was then. You know, for everything from um, social distancing for the actors, transportation for the actors, um, um, the HVAC requirements for the venue, cleaning requirements for the venue, how the audience is handled when they come in. So we put a lot of safety protocols in place, all of which have really stayed in place the entire season. We just finished our season, which was five shows. So all the safety protocols have stayed in place. And I tell people coming here is like coming to summer camp. You're never without a counselor, you know? We do timed seating depending on where the audience is seated so they don't have to cross each other when they come in. Um, then they come in, it's masks on indoors the whole time. Um, if you're going to the bathroom, you go out the, the opposite side door to go to the hallway to the bathroom. There's an usher that meets you there. There's only one person in the bathroom at a time. That's loosening up now, but but at that time, that's what it was. You know, they would take you back to your seat. Both of those opening, those well, and Wonderful Life, no intermission, um, so straight through, and onboarding the audience in a certain way, and then offboarding the audience in the reverse way, so nobody ever has to cross anybody. Uh, no bar, no lobby concessions, nothing like that. Um, but, you know, people were so eager to do anything, you know, to get out of the house, you know, I was just determined to make it work. And so, and so we did. Thank you for walking us through this, because I think it's, it's very important for, for everyone to hear, especially if they have a theater or they're involved in theater in some way, 
all that went along with trying to do all the things that were required by Actors' Equity, but also just required by health departments and the CDC to keep people safe. And you were really at the forefront of that. And it was because of your innovation and your determination to to get things up and running and to do it safely. And, you know, and, and I also applaud you for just your, again, your, your gumption or your innovation about saying, look, and, and I'm so much like you, as you know, I don't sit in the corner in a fetal position. My feeling first and foremost is if there's a crisis, what can we do? You know, how do we, how do we make it better and better for everybody else? And, and you've done that. Where do you think we are headed for 21? Because I know things are, st- like you said, things are starting to, you know, move um, I'm hoping with my fingers crossed to have a show up in October with my company. But again, it's it's all trial and error right now still, isn't it, Kevin? It is. It is. Um, so here's where here's where I think we are, and I can tell you where we are in Connecticut right now. Um, first of all, up until now, this is another really important piece of the whole like fabric of, of the journey is we've only been allowed to have, we our theater seats 110, we've only been allowed to have 25 live audience uh, the entire season, which is why we did four one-person shows, one-man shows, and Wonderful Life, which only has four actors. Because uh, we, we were gonna open with Ghost and you know Tenderly, all these other things. And you haven't been able to sing in Connecticut until two weeks ago, inside. So, you know, everybody's like, where's the music uh-huh. in Music Theater of Connecticut? Well, that's where it was, you know, so that's going to be remedy. And I'll tell you about that in a minute. But um, um, so that's that's been the way it's been. And we've, we have also, for people who weren't comfortable coming out, we've done virtual tickets for everything, too. So we've done, you know, you're seeing um, it's not a taped. It's not anything that's taped. You're seeing that performance at that moment, just like if you were sitting in the audience. So it's a live stream every every show. So that's how we've gotten through the season. I really have believed from the beginning, at least once we got to like January and the vaccines were starting to come out, I've really seen this as a renaissance year. 2021 is a renaissance year. And you know, when the plague happened in the Middle Ages in, in Europe, it was immediately followed by the Renaissance. So I thought, well, you know, if we look at history, maybe that's what will happen here. So as I said, things are starting to open up here. And, you know, I mean, Broadway, there are 16 Broadway shows that that just went online to buy tickets uh, on Monday. And they're opening in September, and uh, many of them. Um, and our restrictions in Connecticut have been lightening up a little bit all the time, because I've had to, you know, I've had to balance the Connecticut restrictions with the equity restrictions, you know, the whole time, which anybody who's producing theater would have to do in their state. Uh, so, and every state's different, obviously. So, uh, but the Broadway shows, I think, are going to open up at 100% in September. Now, that scares me a little bit um, for a couple of reasons. I've, I've also always thought that, you know, I mean, as the vaccines have gotten prevalent, and we I'm so, we're so fortunate to live here because Connecticut's leading the country in the percentage of 
they're 70% of our population is vaccinated now. Yes. So that's really great. And that's made such a difference in people coming back. I mean, people wear it as like a badge of honor. They come and go, I'm fully vaxxed, you know? So, you know, it's great. And you can just feel the air changing, you know, you can just feel it, which is great. And I think, um, I think that will continue, you know, especially as we go into the summer, because, you know, if, if history is an indicator last summer, our numbers really dipped low, you know, here in Connecticut, um, uh -huh. because people are able to be outside and all of that kind of stuff. So I've taken, we're using the summer here as a transition period. We're doing, we're doing a thing, we do a thing called Hot Summer Nights, which is a cabaret series here uh, that, that we're gonna do this summer. And uh, obviously they'll be singing again because we're allowed to do that. Uh, the, the singer has to be 12 feet from the closest audience member. And that's the way it's been the whole, the whole year. So that's nothing new for us. Um, we're opening up our theater to 60% um, because it'll still be socially distanced. Um, masks still required. Um, we're gonna open the bar, but we're gonna do it outside. Um, so we're sort of opening the door gradually because we've had such a great safety record the whole year. And I know people have felt so safe. I don't want to just sort of like throw them into the deep end of the pool, even though starting May 19th, all the restrictions are coming off in Connecticut, basically. Um, you know, and I think, I think that will be okay because Connecticut's been sort of creeping the door open little by little as well. So it's not quite as dramatic as it sounds, but at the end of the day, the public will tell you what they're willing to do. You know, they will tell you what they feel safe doing. So we think with opening to 60% and keeping the mask requirement in place uh, that they will still feel safe, you know, coming here. And, you know, we'll see. I mean, there are five cabaret shows, the first one being June 19th. So, you know, we will assess after each one kind of what the feedback has been and how we felt like the audience felt when they were here. Um, and we'll, we'll see what happens, but I'm hoping that by the time we get to September, we'll be back to 100%. I, I'm, I'm very positive about you know what's happening. You know, with New York announcing that they're going to be opening shows, I feel the same. A little trepidatious about this hundred percent because I know that from just hearing from the theaters here in St. Louis, and I don't know if you feel the same. They're all talking about how outdoor feels more comfortable than indoor right now also a combination of virtual and live maybe continuing well into the future because i also sit on the arts accessibility committee and they they're really talking about how we need to keep virtual as a part of it because it helps people who have disabilities be more inclusive in theater they feel like they can watch it at home and they don't have to worry about being at the theater um there's there's a lot of and i agree with you renaissance year sounds right to me because there's a as we've talked about this you either look at it positively or you look at it negatively and if we are moving continuing to move forward let's look at it as a way of starting over but starting better you know and, and I guess just, I wanted to just touch upon one question. How did you handle this financially 
when you were doing shows, but you had 25 people in the audience? Because honestly, it kept a lot of theaters in St. Louis from doing anything at all. Right. Well, we're only paying one actor, and which is good. Right. Um, we're doing a non-musical, which is good. Yes. Um, you know, our budget was approved last year uh, by our board in in July, and by September, I mean, you might as well have set fire to it because, you know, and we knew when we approved it, and we that's another thing I have to say. We have the strongest board, and they they really have been so supportive, you know, financially themselves and also in raising money. Mm -hmm. um, we were fortunate, you know, in addition to, you know, I mean, I'm the executive artistic director. So we've talked a lot about the artistic part, but the, in the executive department, in the executive department, you know, we got a PPP loan or a, a, which was just forgiven two days ago, which is great back in May, which was, oh my gosh, there were my life which is enormously helpful. Um, we got, uh, we did fundraisers over the summer, which was also enormously helpful. Um, in the fall, Connecticut had its own COVID relief program. We got $44,000 there. Um, I, I, we got another PPP about uh, six weeks ago um, and we have an SVOG uh, application in right now. So, you know, it's been, it's been a lot of fundraising and, um, you know, Everything, as far as like the nonprofit people will get this, um, as far as the earned part of our budget, it's probably about 30%. You know, we're doing about 30% of what we would normally do. And the non-earned income part, which is the most misnomer in the world, because that's harder work than the earned part sometimes, um, you know, has really had to sort of step in and pick up the slack. So that's how we've gotten through we have four core staff members we didn't lay anybody off and we didn't reduce the salary on them and i said to the board at the very beginning the the four of us have to be protected because none of this is this is like the four horsemen of the apocalypse if one's out all everybody else falls down so you know we've all got to be able to make this work and we will we will change the programming we will do all that kind of stuff we built a film studio upstairs in what used to be a vocal studio. And we did a student production up there last year that was all all virtual in a green screen room. So it was, I mean, it looks like a Disney production. You know, it's it's great with like, vir you know, virtual backgrounds and all of that kind of stuff. So it was really fun, Little Mermaid. So, um, you know, we've, we've figured out creative and outside the box ways to make it work. And that would be my advice to anybody. You know, don't think you don't think, well, we only produce theater. Theater's a lot of different things. And um, you kind of have to, you know, open your mind and think, we could do a virtual show. We could do, you know, we could do, you know, you just have you do what you have to, you know, and it can still be good and it can still be impactful. I think this is very important, this information and this advice that you're giving and, and the experience that you've had, because I think it's important for other theater makers and, and, you know, people who are involved in this to understand that this is not something that should hold you back or set you back or, or freak you out. It It is a way of, of becoming creative and innovative. And I love what you said about theater's not just one thing, it's it's the arts. So 
you know, yes, you might be frightened. And I think we all have been tremendously and still are. But I, I applaud your, uh, in a, your ability to embrace like different styles and, and to, you know, like you said, to pivot and to, to pirouette through, you know, through all the changes. And, and that is, you know, right there, that's theater because it's, it's got to be from a creative base, doesn't it, Kevin? It does. It does. Um, there are a lot of ways to tell the story that you want to tell. And, um, and there's another theater that, that is very much, and the artistic director is a good friend of mine. It's in Hartford, which is about an hour from here, um, that have done the same kind of thing. I mean, they, they also have, uh, have done a lot of virtual stuff. Um, they turned a lot of stuff into film that they have done you know, uh, which has been really, really great. I mean, it's, you know, I think we're, it really calls upon you. We talked earlier about, you know, directors being able to pull things out of actors that they don't think they're capable of, but you can also pull it out of yourself. And you can also, if you have a team, you know, they, I mean, our director of production is beyond brilliant. And so he has really pushed me artistically, you know, I mean, he's also our resident lighting designer. So he pushes me, he pushes me artistically in, even in regular stage production too, but we think exactly the same. I mean, and he gets me as a director, but the same thing happened with the virtual stuff. I mean, I didn't know anything about virtual and he knows everything about virtual. So, you know, it, it's so helpful to have somebody there who you can go to and say, I see this this way. I don't know how to do it, but this is what I think it should look like. And he's like, oh, okay, well, what do you think about this? And we can do this and this, and we can go over here and, you know. So um, together, we were all, the four of us were able to just kind of navigate the storm, you know, but I don't think any of us ever thought, and as, as the captain of the ship, I didn't want anybody ever to think, we're not going to make it through this. We always, from the beginning, I was like, I don't know how, but we are going to get through this. It's going to happen. It's going to be okay. This is important to hear this because I think, you know, uh, there's a lot of people that have had struggles with all of it and have had struggles and felt not as optimistic or not as, um, you know, as, as positive. And I think that a theater in general, we have to, you know, we have to just keep thinking that, you know, this is going to be, um, you know, this is going to be a good change and it's going to be a positive change. I think that it also harkens to your ability to collaborate. And, and I think that's what you're trying to say. I mean, you know, leaning to a, someone in your, in your group and saying, you know, I see it this way, don't, don't know how to do this, but, you know, and then, and then handing it off to somebody else who does. And that's a brilliant, you know, piece of advice. Yeah, well, theater, theater is a collaborative art form. I mean, it's a, it's a team sport, you know, and um, I have never been one of those directors or artistic directors, I try to surround myself with the best people all the time. You know, I just think, I think it makes all of us better. It makes the product better. Um, it makes the story better. And that's really, that's really where we're going. And that's, that's another thing I love about directing is being a part of the team. You know, 
I've never been one of those directors who, even with an actor who's like, this is the way I see the role. This is the way you're going to do it. You know, on this line, cross down right. And I just, you know, I'm an inside out kind of guy in the same way that Peter Flint was. I mean, when he said, when he said to you, you know, she's in there, just step back and let her emerge. You know, that's exactly right. Everything comes from within all of us. It's all in us. So, you know, if it's real for you, it'll be real for the audience. So, and, and I feel the same way about production. You know, if it's moving me, it's going to move the audience. Mm-hmm. You know, you just have to kind of trust that. I mean, we all have our the moments when the demons come and the, the moments of self-doubt, but you can't let yourself get consumed by that. You know, it's healthy. It's healthy to doubt yourself a little bit every so often, because if there's an obstacle there, you grow from overcoming it. But um, but you've got to always in your heart believe that you're going to get through it. It's going to be okay. Mm-hmm. Where do you think, and I, and I think you touched a little bit upon it early on when we were talking about ragtime, but especially in the last year, not only have we had the pandemic has been such a monumental part of theater, but also this real focus on inclusion, diversity, and equity, and, and, and really reaching out to the BIPOC community to say, you know, we are listening, we're learning. Where do you see that going forward in 21, 22? Uh, we, we are trying to, uh, across the board here, we're trying to, um, to expand what we do with that. We've always had, I mean, we have a partnership here with the Norwalk Housing Authority, which is, which are the projects where we bring their kids here. You know, uh, I, I get it funded every year. Um, you know, it's talk about transformational, you know, not only, I mean, I feel a little guilty because it's as or more transformational for us with these kids than it is for them. I mean, it is transformational for them, but they don't realize the transformative power that it has on us here and the staff too. Um, it really, it really reminds, it really lets you, it's an educational process for us, you know, too. Um, hearing their perspective and getting an understanding of what their lives are like and what their history is like and, you know, their perspectives on things and stuff. It's really, it's really fascinating. And I think, I think those kind of things, um, go a long way. Um, I would encourage people, uh, theater makers, to not just talk about it, but to put it into action. You know, um, I mean, the discussion is vital, but you need to do something too, like we did Ragtime. When we did RFK, I cast a Hispanic guy as Robert Kennedy. Mm -hmm. You know, so I think I think demonstrating that kind of thing is is as important as the discussions. We're expanding our board to include more BIPOC people and include more women. You know, uh, it's uh, you know, it really is an awakening. You know, I mean, in addition to a renaissance, I mean, a renaissance is an awakening and a rebirth. But there's a whole part. It's a that's a very it's a very wide swath. I mean. Mm-hmm. Learning how to create theater in this new way is a wide swath, but also expanding the tent 
is a wide swath too. And they can happen at the same time, you know? It's true. And I, I think that sometimes we don't even, you know, we haven't even stopped to think where there isn't representation, where there isn't, you know, a voices that are, that are needed. And, 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 and it's, I think it's, it's, it's wonderful that there's now that focus on that so that we, we start looking within our own organizations, with, in our own hearts and minds about where we sit with all of it and what we're doing about it. And exactly what you said. Yeah. And I think we also have to recognize that every journey of, of the BIPOC community and of, of, of performers and artists that have been marginalized is different. You know, I'm a gay man, but my journey is not the same as a black man. I mean, we've both been marginalized, but in a different way. So I think that's important to understand that everyone's story is different, you know, and understanding those different stories is important, you know. The BIPOC thing, it's hard to lump all of that together because it's such a big, that's such a big thing, you know, made up of so many different stories that have been um, that haven't been given the same opportunity, but for different reasons. Well, and looking at it as theater, these are th- stories. So it, are we telling the human experience or are we telling the white experience? And if we step back and realize that if we're telling the human experience, it absolutely makes sense if you have a person of color in a role in a story because you're getting now everyone's experience and they're 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 adding to that it's not taking away from it it's it's getting another richer thread to the theater stories that we tell don't don't you agree with that i agree completely i agree completely yeah um and it just again we want the audience to understand without sounding too uh, fairy taleish, the moral of the story, you know, you want them to under, understand why this is important for them to understand this journey, you know? Um, and I think by doing that in an authentic way, it, it makes, obviously you want to you want to do that in an authentic way and, and because that makes all the difference, you know? And you can't do it with an authentic, in an authentic way from just a white perspective. Right. And, you know, I mean, going back to Peter and, and some other mentors that I've had in my life, just talking about the, you know, the, the LGBTQ community, we always think that, that that means that it's a certain kind of person and a part. But the one thing that Peter used to say, and, and a lot of mentors of mine is, you know, people that are your dentists are gay, people that are your lawyers are gay, and you don't, you don't even think about this. It's again, it's a human experience. It's, it's who these people are just in their everyday lives. It's not like they're wearing a sign that says, I'm gay, I'm trans, you know, or wearing a sign saying, well, I'm black or I'm Indian. It's ridiculous to think that. It is. So in theater, it should be the same thing. There shouldn't be this, (laughs) well, he's a gay lawyer. You know, it's just. I know. I know. That's why I hate the term gay marriage. It's not gay marriage. It's marriage. That's right. You know? That's right. Why are we labeling this? Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, I mean, that's a whole culture shift. And, but, you know, 
we're the artists and we should be leading the way on that. Uh, that's know? very important. Yeah, it's, it's always more impactful to show it rather than tell it, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know. Where, where do you think, um, where do you think our next uh, big thing's going to be? I mean, do you think it's going to be the Broadway reopening or do you think it's going to, we're going to see it more regionally that things are going to be uh, coming back to normal? Well, I think I've always thought that it's been easier to open from small to big, mm -hmm. you know. Um, so Broadway has now sort of set the big thing. And and like the guy who played um, um, the 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 waiter, the host and fully committed for us, we got him again because he's Bach in the national tour of Wicked and they weren't working. So you know, so he, he did fully committed. They're going back to work in August, mm -hmm. um, opening in Dallas. So the national tours are coming back. I'm sure you've heard, you guys have heard stuff, you know, in St. Louis about national tours coming back as well. Sure, so yeah, yeah, exactly. So um, I think, I think they've set the benchmark sort of, you know, at the top for the big things. And I think we are going to fill in the blanks regionally uh, going up to that. So I think over the summer, you know, I mean, I've heard from my friends who work at equity that they are being inundated right now with, um, safety applications, you know, applications. Now equity has said they put in a whole new, uh, set of, of, um, of, of guidelines now for vaccinated people, because that had just sort of happened. So that started, the beginning of April and those guidelines are in place until the end of June and they're going to review again at the end of June. So I'm sure that we'll have a whole new, I mean, I've got a, I've got a season sort of like, you know, sitting in the warmer on the stove right now that would start in September, but I, I can't announce it because I don't know exactly what's going to happen in September. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, hopefully they'll make decisions quickly at the end of June and we'll be able to go, okay, at least I know what this is going to look like moving forward into the fall. Mm -hmm. So um, I, th I think that's what will happen. I think, I think, I think people will are starved to come back. I mean, that's been our feedback here. We've had so many people here come and say, this is the first place we've been in a year. And we really wanted to come here, mm -hmm. you know, which is enormously, I mean, that's like, Okay, that's why we're doing this, you know. Well, here in St. Louis, they started rehearsals uh, for King Lear that sh Shakespeare is doing in the park, uh, St. Louis Shakespeare um, Festival with uh, Andre De Shields, who's coming, who's here in town rehearsing, but it's outside. So this will be the first big thing here. And it's exciting because, you know, we hope the Muni then and then stages and we, you know, we sort of see this happening and, and you know, uh, we've had uh, some of our theaters have done outside children's shows like Metro. It's, it's, a, it's a big thing, it's, it's good that that's i was going to ask you what do you feel about the mass exodus i know a lot of people moved out of new york city because there weren't any jobs for actors and dancers and singers and and went and did other careers do you think that they'll come back to it i mean what do you where do you see i mean i don't know i, I hope so I, I hope so um 
I mean, you know, we're a bedroom community of New York. So the real estate here is on fire right mm. now. It is on fire and has been since last summer. Um, and, you know, a lot of, a lot of Broadway and New York expats, you know, have moved up here um, because it is commutable, you know? So I just, I, I don't know. I honestly don't know what will happen. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I mean, New York dumps out, I, New York is the recipient of colleges dumping out so many kids coming out of BFA programs, you know, in the, in this fall, those kids are ready to go. I mean, they are, you know, they are, they're moving in and they are ready to go. So um, I don't know, as far as like people who have, who've really said, okay, that's it. I've had enough and, and I'm not going to go back. Um, the people up here who've moved up here are looking forward to working here at MTC and working in the, there are 15 equity companies in Connecticut. So, um, you know, they're, they're looking at, you know, being able to work and live at home. Connecticut's really been at the forefront of this so much. And as an educator, because I, I didn't, we didn't touch upon how you've been such an amazing uh, teacher at so many different colleges. What advice would you give to, to theater students at this point who are coming now out of the pandemic, going into theater? What do you tell your students and what do you feel about the, their future? I, I tell them that the future is bright. First of all, I tell them, I tell them two things. First thing I tell them is art picks you, you don't pick it. So if it is in your blood, there is not much you can do, you know, other than follow it because it's gonna find a way out. Um, the second thing I tell them is that the, the goal of an actor is to be working as much as they can. Broadway's great, you know, because so many of our kids have grown up around here and been going to Broadway shows since they were four. Mm -hmm. um, so Broadway's great. And in some ways it can be the penultimate, but there's so much great work going on in regional theaters and national tours, you know, that, that you know, that's important too. And that's going to fill probably the majority of your career. If you're lucky enough, I mean, I have friends who've gone, you know, during regular times, from one Broadway show to the next, you know, uh, for 17 or 18 or 19 or 20 years. So, you know, if you're lucky enough to do that, that's great. But um, in the meantime, you know, go go support a regional theater. I always tell them too, to um, when you get out of college, find, find a, one or two theaters that really love you and that you really love the work there and sort of think of them as your sort of home base, you know, that you can go there and do a role that you might not get cast in on Broadway because you're too young or you're too old or you're too tall or you're too short or, you know, whatever, but you will get to, you know, work your craft and, and stretch and do stuff there in a much less exposed environment. And that's gonna make you a better artist. And at the end of the day, you're an artist, you're a storyteller, that's what you're going to do and stay focused on that you know that that's what i tell them but and i tell the parents who are always scared to death because of you know first of all i hate the word rejection because i don't think they're it is such a negative sounding word like you weren't worthy and the fact of the matter is this is the only business where you can have the best audition of anybody during the day and you're just not right 
It doesn't mean you're not good. It doesn't mean you're not talented. It doesn't mean you didn't like blow their hair off with your audition, but you weren't right. There's not a role in every show for everybody. So, so, you know, don't let that, don't let that dissuade you, you know, if you look, an audition is a job application. It's a job interview. And if you went to Macy's to apply for a job and you didn't get it, you wouldn't say you're rejected. You say they hired somebody else. And that's what this is too. So, you know, it's no, nothing personal. Don't take it. Rejection implies a personal, you know, edge to it. And there's, it's not personal. It's true. It's, but I think it's hard for, because the actor itself, there's this emotionality because we are putting ourselves out there and vulnerable and exactly we're sort of, you know, you know, it was that, that feeling of being uh, private in public. Exactly. Peter used to say. I know that's what I, and I have, I have ripped his phrase off so many I, I know I have, I have them exactly in my right. phone list. I know. And I and I used to look at them and I think it's true, you know, I'm I'm bearing my soul. And I think that's what it is. There's that sense of I'm being rejected, but you are so right. It's if if it was a job at Macy's, I'd say, oh, you know, the other guy got it and I'm okay. But <laughs> but it's because we are showing that part of ourselves. It's, you know, when we're acting or singing or dancing, it's it's so there's a sense that you're showing an, an inner part of your shell, I believe, a little bit, don't you exactly. think? Exactly, <laughs> exactly. It's like I told, you know, it's like I told my friend a secret and it didn't matter to them, you know, mm -hmm. so I'm hurt about that, mm -hmm. you know, but it's not really that. It just so happens that as actors, we work with our egos and it's it's hard to say, I just bore my soul to you and you didn't give me the job. And any director worth his salt would sit down with you and say, you touched me so deeply with that monologue, with that song. I'm going to think about that for, the, for a long, long time. And by the way, this is the other thing I tell them. Every audition you do is an audition for the next five things. So this is no different than any other business. It's about building relationships. Mm. And just because you're not right for this show doesn't mean that they don't go. I've got a whole file here in my desk of people who weren't right for what I was casting, but I thought, Jesus, that person was so great. I really want to work with them. They're not right for this, but I'm going to save this. Mm -hmm. You know, so you never know. That's true. You never know. It, just so so that we can close with, do you have any stories of working with uh, famous celebrities that you can share that would be a great story? I know you've had a lit long list. You opened for Bob Hope. You've opened for Johnny Mathis. You've worked with Joanna Gleason and Chris Sarandon, who I love. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, yes, I'll, I'll tell you, I'll tell you this story because it's, it's a charming, it's a charm. First of all, I'll tell you two things. First of okay. all, I'll tell you, I'll tell you, I'll tell you that uh, when I worked with Joan Rivers, she is so opposite her persona. Mm. I mean, that's a part of her. I shouldn't say she's opposite that. It's not like she's playing a character, but that's a different part of her persona. She's sweet, she's loving, she is supportive. I did a, um, I did a, uh, I directed the reopening of a big, like the Fox Theater here, it's called the Palace. They had done this huge renovation on the, on the front of the building. And so they did a big gallery opening with the Stanford Symphony and, and James Naughton and, and Joan was the, was the, was the, like the, the megastar of it. 
And so she came in, you know, at like six o'clock just to kind of get a feel for the place. And I was directing it. So we were out on stage and, and she said, do you have a clock? She said, how long do you want? And I said, well, 15 minutes, because uh, my pressure as a director with that was if the entire show ran over two hours, the entire orchestra would go into overtime. And the producer said to me, you can't let it go over time. Mm. So, you know, I was like, you know, hammering the stage manager a little bit all the time. I did, I was right, right, you know, stage right in the wings for the entire show, right by the stage manager. Jimmy Naughton had his arm on my shoulder and said, you're going to make it, you're going to make it, you're going to make it. Um, anyway, Joan said to me, how, how long do you want? And I said, well, 15 minutes. And, and she said, and, and I said, because I can't let the, the, um, the orchestra going to overtime. And she said, she said, I want you to put a clock out here for me. It'll be exactly 15 minutes. She said, because I learned something early on in my career. She said, the first time I played Vegas, I was at the Desert Inn and uh, I was the opening act and I was supposed to do 20 minutes. And she said, the audience was fabulous and they were going with it. And it was just fabulous. It's like, oh my God, this is, this is the kind of opening in Vegas I've always dreamed of. And so she said, so I went to 25 minutes, you know, and she said, she said it was, you know, the audience, it was perfect. And I walked off and she said, the owner of the casino was standing off stage, right? And I walked off and I said, gee, that was so great, blah, 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 blah. And he said to me, you just kept people out of my casino for another five minutes. You do that again, you'll never work here again. And she said, oh my God. She, you know, she hadn't even looked at it that way. And she said, so from that time on, if you tell me 15 minutes, it'll be 15 minutes. Wow. I know, I know. So I thought, wow, wow what a great story. Um, and then Chris she's and Joanna. So missed. Oh yeah, goodness. she's so missed. Um, and Chris and Joanna are amazing. And um, I'll tell you this, I, I hope I'm not talking out of school. I don't, I don't think she would care if I told you this. So they did love letters here for us. And um, uh, I did, we did love letters and we did it with a different couple every weekend. We ran it for three weekends, but did it with a different couple every weekend. Um, and they were the first weekend. Mm. And so they're out in front of our building um, is this huge sign that is white. It's, it's huge. And we have been trying to get that sign forever uh, because there's another building right in front of our building. And because we're right, not right on the road, there's a, we had to go through a whole zoning thing anyway, all that kind of stuff. So we were right in the middle of trying to, trying to get this sign. And Joanna said to me, what's the deal with the sign? You guys really need that sign. I said, I know. I said, I know we're, we're right in the middle of trying to get it. And, and I said, but you know, the signs are expensive and stuff. So I've got to figure out how to raise the money. Um, they turned their salary back in oh my at the goodness. end of the weekend and said, buy your sign. Oh, I know, That's... I know. <laughs> I'm tearing up just thinking about it. I, I just, I you am, know? I am as well. They it's... are so, they are so supportive. And, you know, there's so many artists who are that way. There are just so many artists who are that way. And especially now, you know, I mean, everybody, it, it really does feel like it really has sort of pulled the community together a little bit. So I think that that's, it's a really, you know, there, there are 
weirdly enough, positive things, I think, that can come out of this. And you've got to try to find those. Those are beautiful stories. Thank you for sharing that. And, and, and let me say thank you for sharing your time today with, with the Moonstone Connections podcast. Kevin, I'm such a big fan of yours. It, you know, you're, it, it, again, he's the founder and executive director of the Music Theater of Connecticut. He is just, a, I, I, like I said, a renaissance man. And I, I truly believe you are going to be want, remembered as a leader of this entire pandemic, changing the landscape of theater. I know that just knowing you and, and talking to you and getting your advice about things has been just so valuable to me. And I can't imagine how this advice you gave today would be so valuable to all these theater leaders who are listening. So thank you so much. Absolutely. We're all in this together, you know, and anything we can share, anything, any words of wisdom, any stories, experiences, anything like that, it's just going to make us all better. I mean, I have always thought that theater begets theater. So, you know. It's really true. Go and team. <laughs> go team. And I, again, I, I can't tell you thank you enough for being with us. And and just uh, I can't I can't wait to see what you do next. Well, that's so sweet. Thanks. Neither can I. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see what September brings. <laughs> well, that's our show. Thank you for joining me. Be well, be safe and be good to each other. I'm Sharon Hunter. Until next time on Moonstone Connections.